Hi Brooks, this is Jack Hartz reading Collected Poems and the St. Vincent Belay, uh, looking at his laptop. That's, that's he's very more than enough, more than enough, more than enough. Thank you, sir. Thank you much. All right. Uh, I'll go ahead and kick us off. Uh, thank all of you for joining us today at the Losing Watery Quarantine Collective. As we dive into the Barbarian Despotic Machine, we're going to forego announcements today and kind of just get into it because this is uh, where things for me, I like things start kicking off and where I know I've got a little bit more studying myself to do. And so this is going to be a set of fun discussions. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and dive in unless anyone has a random thing they want to jump into. I'm kind of excited to just do that. <sighs> so let's give it a shot. The founding of the despotic machine, or the barbarian socius, can be summarized in the following way. A new alliance and direct filiation. The despot challenges the lateral alliances and the extended filiations of the old community. He imposes a new alliance system and places himself in direct filiation with the deity. The people must follow. A leap into a new alliance, a break with the ancient filiation, this is expressed in a strange machine, or rather, a machine of the strange, whose locus is the desert, imposing the harshest and the most barren of ordeals, and attesting to the resistance of a, an old order, as well as to the validation of the new order. The machine of the strange is both a great paranoiac machine, since it expresses the struggle with the old system, and already a glorious celibate machine, insofar as it exalts the triumph of the new alliance. The despot is the paranoiac. There is no longer any reason to forego such a statement, once one has freed oneself from the characteristic familialism of the concept of paranoia in psychoanalysis and psychiatry, and provided one sees in paranoia a type of investment of a social formation. A new perverse groups spread the des and new perverse groups spread the despot's invention. Perhaps they even fabricated it for him. They broadcast his fame and impose his power in the towns they found or conquer. Wherever a despot and his army pass, doctors, priests, scribes, and officials are part of the procession. It might be said that the ancient complementarity has shifted to form a new socius, no longer the bush paranoiac and the encampment of village perverts, but the desert paranoiac and the town perverts. Uh, dive in right the fuck in, aren't we? Uh, so... Uh, to sort of catch us up, and I know we missed a, a little bit here uh, with reading this. Uh, I, I, well, well, basically my life was uh, frying last week, and I was melting, so my computer couldn't turn on. But uh, we've moved on, and we've started to finish talking about the previous socius, that of the uh, earth, that of the body being marked, how it works, how these things uh, sort of happen, how production is organized on such a socius, the first socius, the primitive. As we move to the despotic socius, the play, as they say here in this opening paragraph, is that we're now moving into a different place of alliances. The, the despot challenges those, but extends the filiations. Now suddenly everyone is directly filiated with a single person who's ultimately also filiated with the deity, in the same way that my filiation in the old, uh, the, the primitive, Maybe my family that I'm able to trace back. I know where I'm born, who I'm born to, and sort of the contingent reality of my existence. Now my reality, my my familial relations, 
is determined not by really who I'm born to, but the area I'm born in and the despot I'm born under. Uh, this, this new reality of things, this new strange machine that they call, is a great paranoiac machine and a great glorious celibate machine. I love this language because they talk very quickly about how we're doing away with the sort of classic way of talking about the paranoiac and instead discussing as they've moved into the, the demand of investment of social formations. And so now we have the paranoiac on one side, the glorious celibate machine on the other, the, the perverts who may play those things. Uh, the desert paranoiac and the town perverts is a great phrasing. Uh, Ken, uh, if you want, I, I can have you read your stuff. I just love that, um, that line you used in the text. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the perverse structure or whatever, it sounds like they're maintaining psychoanalytic stuff here, um, makes themselves an extension of some sort of transcendent order, some sort of unchanging word of God uh, that only they have access to, or some like sort of final truth. Um, and that seems like what they're talking about. So you have, you have the, and, and I guess you can say the despot is pervert in this way. So you have the, uh, the despot and behind him all of his, or her, their followers, I guess. And they create a little religion or something. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the, the machine that they're talking about here. And again, uh, their use of machine may be apparatus. It's the structure of a thing that produces, is, is sort of simplified. Um, wherever the despot and his armies pass, doctors, priests, scribes, and officials are part of the procession. The, the entire social structure is about following this despot and being part of his world and, and joining him. Uh, and again, they may have created it for him is a, is a wonderful little nod to the, uh, I don't know, it makes me think of Dune and Maudib. The idea of this uh, charismatic leader figure God who, uh, whether or not he created his own sort of deity nature or that was created for him by the people around him, and that's a kind of a point of the book, uh, I really kind of, it, it made me think of that, those things as we were reading it the first time and even more so now. It's a really great language around it. Well, what the pervert doesn't know is that he's going to get sacrificed at some point. Um, and, and so Young makes this point that master and pupil are in the same boat and that it's not, you know, he thinks it's not just like, like the trying to find a, a hero or a master figure or something, uh, isn't simply, uh, the activity of stupid idolaters who can't think of themselves. He thinks that it's almost like, um, you know, it offers so many things and that it does go in both directions. Um, that it's not, you know, someone is just like this floating signifier who has this innate uh, potential to be uh, extra despotic and people are just awed by whatever their wisdom. And speaking of deserts, you know, this is, this almost seems like a harken back to, uh, uh, unwise men from thus spoke Zarathustra. Um, but, um, but the, both, both the, 
you know, the so-called followers and the despot both get something out of this um, relationship. But the, what, but what the despot doesn't know is that oftentimes uh, they get sacrificed for uh, so-called progress. Well, I think I think part of the discussion around machine is to say that it's not the despot who rules over people or the people who put it up, uh, but instead that it is uh, simultaneous. It's a you know back and forth relationship that one helps the other and then the other pushes the one. It's perverse versus paranoiac. Uh, it's I think it works how they might feed into each other. Yeah, but but it's almost like there's some sort of um like secret ordering principle where, you know, there is no intention here. It's not like the people are secretly looking for a despot or, or someone is secretly wanting to be a despot or something. There's, there's just this, I don't know what it, I don't even know what to call it. Um, you know, this is where Jung would use the archetype, right? But there's this like secret ordering principle that makes this happen. And it's not like people, people are forced to enjoy this stuff. It's not necessarily that they, that any of this is intended or desired for. It's, this is the, this is the drive is my idea about it. Well, and, and part of what they say here uh, that is very different in terms of how the socius operates underneath the barbarian despotic machine uh, there's a line in here. Uh, they impose his power in the towns they found or conquer. That uh, under the primitive socius, uh, the alliances and affiliations were very much as sort of, you know, a effectively anarcho-commune kind of pacts that would be founded between team between towns or villages or whatever it may be. The change here is the the nature of power and how power plays out. That people who come and spread his invention the perverse groups they make their way uh into different villages and areas spout him and then control that they they do this on his behalf perhaps not even with his knowledge uh they may they may just go do this and it's it's a completely different way of sort of thinking through how this kind of reality you know upends into people and i want to get into the next paragraph because that continues it any last thoughts on this before i move forward Yeah, I have a little bit of a different take. Um, oh, please, please. Because I think I think part of the challenge with what they're laying out here is that it's going to call into question. I mean, especially if you want like uh, think of archetypes, but very standard ways of thinking about um, the despotic or the fascist, right? So, like, you know, after reading this, I found it hard to. Um, to really hold on to something like the strong man, right, which is still possible, but it's obviously um, questionable because that would centralize something that I don't think is um, uh, symmetrical with this. So what I'm kind of seeing out of it is actually, um, and it's a little bit more in the way you guys are saying, but where I'm reading things like the despot challenges, the lateral alliances and the extended affiliations, so the socius and what's being written upon the socius, right? It's no longer um, that grid work on the earth and the way that that plays onto production. Uh, it's now on the despot and these perverts, right? And what's interesting about this is 
for the sake of a comparison, I'll, I'll make this point, but it's kind of um, oversimplifying. But so if you think about the the primitive kind of schizophrenically, because it's an open system in that, one of the things you get out of um, Ben, Ben, if you could mute yourself. <laughs> thanks. Uh, one of the things you get out of the despotic socius then is going to be this paranoia machine, right? Which means that we're now seeing um, something like maybe closing systems, right? Because this desert, what it's, I think what it's basically doing is it's um, sort of, I don't want to say drying up production, but um, it's just like we saw in chapter one, section two, I think it is, where they go into the, the paranoiac god working against uh, Judge Schraber's miraculating organs, right? The way the BWO is both um, producing that schizophrenic process, right? Enabling that, but also um, creating the counter tension with it too, right? And that's kind of what I'm seeing here is that you're getting that, um, that socius kind of paranoiac, uh, but also the celibate machine, right? It's now suggesting that the way people get their AFAT, well, not even people, the way that um, AFATs are going to be distributed, and the paranoia part is particularly interesting there because that plays into the creation of AFATs, is going to be through the um, through the dustbin. Well, so yeah, I guess like uh, yes, no, no, that's I think that's what I was saying is that now we're at the point where desires not being organized through sort of uh, my direct, you know requirements I have through my affiliations and alliances, but instead those have now been uh, perverted, as they might, they might say, uh, and upended, where my alliances are now being dictated by these people going village to village telling me what I need to be doing. The celibate aspect of this that is kind of driving my desires to be formed into a new way, telling me where my desires need to be or how they need to be placed or, or having these celibate machines that pop out of such a thing, ultimately is about the breakdown of the familial and the sort of reorganization of it and the alliances. Am, am I wrong there? Well, and that's where I'm getting, moving toward. I think it's not simply that the, the army and them are, are telling you what to do, right? If the socius is paranoiac and celibate machine, right? So it's almost like the, the very conditioning of all of this, right? The distribution uh, upon production and that is actually going to basically uh, kind of countervail uh, desires, right? Or at least schizophrenic desires, right? And that's kind of the, the interesting thing is that um, at that level, right, you're kind of talking about like at one level, there's kind of this productive process with some schizophrenic stuff happening. But it sounds like there's also like a powerful um, paranoia compulsion upon it, right? Which is going to uh, not just like direct where your desires go, but it's going to bear down upon desire um, in these more, I want to say breakdowny ways, because that's that's misleading. But the way we saw the paranoiac in the beginning, right, where like, you know, a Judge Schraper's God tries to basically decompose the organs in their miraculation, right? So as things start to miraculate, you've basically got the despotic, uh, countervailing that production, right? But also producing the affectivity, the subjectivities that you're going to get out of that process. Can I ask a question? Is this uh, the barbarian, 
despotic machine before editorialization, um, before the familiar, you know, triangle comes into play, or is that, is that, are you talking about, um, is it, is it before that, or is it, um, I, I kind of lost track of where we're at here. So he'll directly kind of like talk about the development of edipalization and the different socius in the next chapter after each of them. So like this chapter would be like the despotic barbarian socius, and then the next section is going to be like representation within the barbarian or the despotic socius. And there he sort of like talks about the opening of the edipalization. Uh, or the opening of the edifice complex and the edifalization of desire. But uh, at this point, he he would say that the, 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 the Freudian Oedipal complex does not yet exist within the barbarian despotic socius. Yeah, very quickly here, he'll be getting into, uh, they'll, they'll be talking about how incest actually operates within the barbarian despotic machine. I think it's this end of this or the next chapter, next section. Um, so we're not there yet. Uh, we're, again, it's this this concept of universal history as we kind of move through and talk through, uh, you know, these these little elements where the little pieces were formed, how this piece was built versus this one, and how they sort of made their way back, um, which they'll get back to. So it's it's coming. I think what's really interesting about this chapter is the point he makes where sort of like uh, the the despot like takes over. As you guys were saying, it sort of like closes the system in, but now uh, the the person occupying the position of the despot becomes sort of like the only entrance and exit to the system, right? So like they theoretically through like the divine right of kings or any other sort of mythological construct place themselves in direct filiation with God. And then it's them who through alliances of marrying off children and marrying into children and arranging the marriages of uh courtiers and like the the children of their their nobles to other places create the new systems of filiation and alliance so like before if there were two towns next to each other or something and the people in those towns started intermarrying then like that act of the people who all serve as entrances and exits to the system of lineage and uh, alliance, now it's completely closed off. Like, so no matter how many times, like, you marry across uh, borders between cities, unless the, the despots are the ones creating, like, the new alliances, then, like, there's no entrance between the systems. And that's kind of the, the horror of this, right? Because... To Brooke's point, there is absolutely an imposition going on, but this is the kind of the horror of it, right? Or at least the the terror of it, as they're going to call it um, later on, right? Any desires that connect with you are already going to be conditioned by the uh, the direct affiliation and the uh, new alliance, right? And this kind of as we go, we're going to see this overcoating where. And this is part of the, the trickiness of the universal history is that, and as I've started to read the order of things, it's starting to click with me a little bit better, but the way the earth is socius and those filiations and that, that stuff carries into this, right? But it's also going to be affected by it and changed um, 
by what's kind of shifting into it, which is the despotic. So any any desires that connect with you, right? Um, you know, it's it's kind of frightening in the sense that you don't have to be told what to do because any desires that hit you, any subjectivities, are already going to be conditioned by those in a sense, right? That's 100%. kind of why I think they've got the uh, the desert image. Hundred percent. I'm actually going to jump to the next paragraph now because we're starting to get there. <clears throat> In theory, the despotic barbarian formation has to be conceived of in terms of an opposition between it and the primitive territorial machine, the birth of an empire. But in reality, one can perceive the movement of this formation just as well when one empire breaks away from a preceding empire, or even when there arises the dream of a spiritual empire, wherever temporal empires fall into decadence. It may be that the enterprise is primarily military and motivated by conquest, or that it is primarily religious, the military discipline being converted into internal asceticism and cohesion. It may be that the paranoiac himself is either a gentle creature or a raging beast, but we always rediscover the figures of this paranoiac and his perverts, the conqueror and his elite troops, the despot and his bureaucrats, the holy man and his disciples, the anchorite and his monks, Christ and his Saint Paul. Moses flees from the Egyptian machine into the wilderness and installs his new machine there, a holy ark and a portable temple, and gives his people a new religious military organization. In order to summarize Saint John the Baptist's enterprise, one author declares, John attacks at its foundation the central doctrine of Judaism, the doctrine of the alliance with God through affiliation that goes back to Abraham. There is the essential. Every time the categories of new alliance and direct affiliation are mobilized, we are talking about the imperial barbarian formation or the despotic machine. And this holds true whatever the context of this mobilization, whether in a relationship with preceding empires or not, since throughout these vicissitudes the imperial formation is always defined by a certain type of code and inscription that is in direct opposition to the primitive territorial codings. The number of elements in the alliance makes little difference. New alliance and direct affiliation are specific categories that testify to the existence of a new socius, irreducible to the lateral alliances and the extended affiliations that declined the primitive machine. It is this force of projection that defines paranoia, this strength to start again from zero to objectify a complete transformation. The subject leaps outside the intersections of alliance filiation, installs himself at the limit, at the horizon, in the desert, the subject of a deterritorialized knowledge that links him directly to God and connects him to the people. For the first time, something has been withdrawn from life and from the earth that will make it possible to judge life and to survey the earth from above, a first principle of paranoiac knowledge. The whole relative play of alliances and filiations is carried to the absolute in this new alliance and this direct filiation. I think a lot of that was just continuing our points from the last one. <laughs> we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Um, I do think uh, Ben's right. So the, the line here where it says uh, lateral alliances and extended filiations that declined the primitive machine it should be declined as in declined as in declension, uh, negated or refused. Thanks, Ben. That's spot on. It's not declined as in turned it down, uh, sort of, but more in that direction, not in a 
ang angular sense or whatever the fuck else it could be. Where do you want to start here? <clears throat> or do we need to? Because we kind of discussed a great deal of this. The the final line of this is is ultimately the point of this section as it talks through the nature of the despot. The despot moves. It's not a singular person. It's not one element. It's not a movement from one to the other, but the way that it transfers power and the way that this organization shifts from one to another, even in the breakdown of society, suddenly a new one appears. And, and this nature is every time the categories of new alliance and affiliation are mobilized, we are talking about the imperial barbarian formation or the despotic machine. And it doesn't matter the context, doesn't matter how it's set up, any of that stuff. Ultimately, it is about the one man, the paranoiac at the edge, who is the paranoiac knowledge center, the I know everything, I am everything, you can depend on me mentality. I like the idea that the paranoiac uh, means that uh, he's able to instill fear into the uh, into his um, the people who uh, follow him or who must uh, follow him. But at the same time, he himself is paranoid for, uh, you know, about possibly losing his power, right? It's, it, it's more than even just that. It's the paranoiac knowledge. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Jack or Ken, but uh, the nature of the paranoiac isn't necessarily a direct persecution. There's a, there's a level of that. Paranoiac, uh, especially in like the Lacanian sense, and I think a lot of that is where they derive a lot of this, is much more about the fear of not knowing something or having knowledge pulled from you, that you're aware, being acutely aware that you don't know things. And that is the terror sort of inside of it. Um, and so the first principle of paranoiac knowledge that this guy would have is, oh, I do know everything. It's uh, the line maybe we recently had. Uh, uh, there's the old joke where it doesn't matter what you ask the king. I can't remember the exact wording. Uh, because whatever he answers is the truth. So uh, the pope goes to... Uh, Pope goes to Vegas, bets uh, 45, bets the entire Vatican, 45 red, lands 36 black. He goes, excellent, I won. The house goes, what? And he goes, I'm the Pope. Takes all his money and leaves. Uh, the total absolute knowledge is assumed within this person. Uh, I think but that's the... Same, please. Is it, are they include the same time the knowledge of this, um, the subconscious knowledge of the of the lack that uh, Lacan, you know, uh, you know, posits that it's it's within the, it's it's within our psyche, you know, it's it's part of our psyche to to, uh, you know, to when you assert something, you always assert it in the context of the lack. If I can interject there real fast, the lack comes from this sort of paranoiac order. There is no lack in the real. The lack comes from the imposition of the symbolic order displacing the real. So whenever I erect a symbolic order, an order of knowledge um, or, or, or just something that's meant to totalize everything, what you are, who you are, how you are to be, that's when lack gets put in to the equation. And so it, and, and, and and Lacan is like anti-psychological. So he, he sort of suggests that this has nothing to do with the psyche per se. It has to do with language. Um, so uh, I say something like, um, we're, we're going to 
marry off this person to that person because this is God's will or something like that. And now um, I've erected the phallus as the sort of meaningless signifier, whatever stands in for God's will, my word, um, that, that shakily holds together the symbolic order. That's when lack is there because you, you can keep testing that proposition and it's going to be meaningless. It's going to have no ground to it at all. It's literally just because I said so. Right. But it's also based on the, uh, the realistic understanding of, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, you know, life as such, you know, the death instinct or the, uh, you know, the lose idea of difference that, uh, you know, that we're constantly in this, um, flow of change. And so you try to hang on to what you have, mm-hmm. but you can't, you know, that's the reality is that you can't. So that's, that's also the lack, right? But yeah. The, the, the reality there is you never had that thing in the first place. There was never that, like, there was never original sin to begin with, but, but that is the thing that upholds the master's discourse is something like original sin is something like, you know, uh, some sort of harmonious whole that you used to have, um, but now you don't anymore, or something like that. And so that, yeah, yeah. Into the same river twice, and you can't hold on to what you have had yesterday. Yeah, Fanta Ray, absolutely. Heraclitus. Oh, I like the question from Jen Claire. Uh, where is the desire for the paranoiac? It's a great question, actually, uh, Ken. You want to jump on that one? Uh, to be whole, to to fill a hole, is the uh, paranoiacs. I mean, it, but you can't even necessarily say that. So the paranoiacs' desire is the same desire as everyone. It's the same structure. It's to keep on desiring. So how does the paranoiac who wants to have total knowledge um, keep on desiring? Well, that is to keep on displacing uh, whatever would suggest that, that they haven't filled the hole, that they haven't said finally what, you know, being is, and so on and so forth. And so to keep on displacing that, is, I guess you could say, is the paranoiac's desire. Right. That's, the, that's Lacan's object A, right? Constantly desire what you, you can't have. Yeah, you miss it. You miss it, so you can keep on. You, so the machine can keep on turning. Yeah. Right. And the best part of it, the paranoia has a has a stronger drive for that. Maybe uh, that's what makes them paranoid. Well, so the 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 paranoiac machines. Uh, if we want to jump back to the original syntheses, paranoiac machines uh, essentially are desiring machines that are sort of stuck trying to attach to the BWO, to the singularities, to the partial objects of almost memory, to the things that they know. And that strain and that stress is uh, where the paranoiac sort of comes from inside of those. Uh, I, I believe I should go back and double check, but. I actually have a, a quote to that. Um, there's actually a better one, but I'm, I'm having trouble finding it somewhere. I don't have the PDF in front of me, I'm doing it by hand. But um, let me see here. This is page nine, the penguin. Uh, so this is 
An apparent conflict arises between desired machines of the body without organs. Every coupling of machines, every production of a machine, every sound of a machine running becomes unbearable to the body without organs. Uh, they continue. In order to resist organ machines, the body without organs presents its smooth, slippery, opaque, tout surface as a barrier. In order to resist the linked, connected, and interrupted flows, it sets up a counterflow of amorphous and differentiated fluid. Uh, we are of the opinion that what is ordinarily referred to as so-called primary repression means precisely that. It is not a so-called counter-cathesis, but rather the repulsion of desired machines by the PWO. The real meaning of the paranoiac machine, the desired machines attempt to break into the body without organs, and the body without organs repels them, since it experiences them as an overall persecution apparatus. Uh, they go on to say, but in and of itself, the paranoiac machine is merely an avatar of the desiring machines. It is a result of the relationship between the desiring machines and the PWO, and occurs when the latter can no longer tolerate these machines. And I think that's really important because I think the paranoiac knowledge, I mean, I think what you guys are saying about Lacan is probably spot on, um, although I'm not exactly well versed in Lacan, but that sounds right to me. But this paranoiac knowledge starting again from zero, I think that really is this intentioning between the socius as basically, and this is what's unique about it, right, is there's like this repulsive productive force, right? So it's still productive, but it's, it's a repelling from the socius that affects production itself uh, in terms of what is going to be miraculated. And so I as they're setting up like this, this uh, it's not really a double vision, but it kind of feels that way, where you've got the new alliance and extended affiliate and the direct affiliation um, kind of hitting uh, affiliation and alliance or extended affiliation and uh, uh, alliance. Well, I'm kind of mincing my terms here. But in the way that the two socii are kind of brushing up against each other, I think this first principle of paranoia knowledge it's less about the person knowing best. It's, I think it's a little bit more about how the knowledge itself here is basically um, itself in this kind of uh, this kind of repulsive production. Well, and I think again, because we're coming off of and dis and discussing the sort of social organization as we leave uh, the primitive and we head into the despotic, the way that uh, the way anti-production and the way these elements were created and move within, you know, the, the primitive is through a complex sort of network of, of debts and other elements, as we discussed in the previous sections, uh, it's a, it's a complex sort of network effect, but by taking over the familial, the, 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 the familial relations and sort of having that indebted and also by effectively obliterating and controlling the alliances, the the paranoiac aspect of the despot has taken over controlling that and owns that. Like everything comes down to what the despot says or his lackeys in this case, the perverts, the the people who walk around uh, and say, oh, the, the, he's the best, he's the best, give me all your gold, I'm doing it for him. 
like his lackeys and the perverts that sort of help with that who are utilizing that coding system to control the production and anti-production inside of it. So because everything extends to him, the assumption has to be that this person knows everything or is God or is or is that element, that that transcendent thing that inside of the primitive, it was uh, complex and I was born into a system I don't fully understand, but I'm moving within it and here's how it goes. And I don't really have moms or sisters. I don't, you know, eat my hunt on my way back. I, I don't do that because of these larger sort of network effects because there's no power structure and no economy in, in the primitive. But now that we have power and it is so deeply acute, uh, we have no economic structure. The organization of everything comes back to the basically the Godhead himself. And that's it. If we want to talk about the paranoiac and the perverts, that would do it. And again, this Godhead who ultimately sets things up and controls, he's pushing that very heavily in this paragraph, utilizing utilizing Moses as an example of leaving one despot and then moving over and doing another, turning his people into a religious military organization. Uh, the St. John or St. Paul for Christ, uh, and then St. John the Baptist Enterprise, which essentially was, you know, destroying the doctrine of Judaism only to sort of throw another Abrahamic thing in there. So it's this, this ongoing element of organization and control and power that is ultimately put inside of and embodied by one man. That is the part that's they're discussing here at the end, that it says the subject leaps outside the intersections of alliance filiation and stalls himself at the limit. This is the despot at the horizon in the desert and the desert, their usage here uh, earlier, they talk about the bush uh, when they say the primitive, the desert here is very intentional on multiple levels, but it's, it's the emptiness and the flatness that there is nothing in, except for him, except for God, the God surrogate. For the first time, something has been withdrawn from life and from earth that will make it possible to judge life and survey the earth from above. That first principle of paranoiac knowledge. It's again this assumption that they are the Godhead, they know everything. The whole relative play of alliance and filiations is carried to the absolute in this new alliance and this direct filiation. I'm going to continue the next paragraph because it just flows. It remains to be said that in order to understand the barbarian formation, it is necessary to relate it not to other formations in competition with it temporally and spiritually according to relationships obscure the essential, but to the savage primitive formation that it supplants by imposing its own rule of law that continues to haunt it. It is exactly in this way that Marx defines Asiatic production. A higher unity of the state establishes itself on the foundations of the primitive rural communities, which keep their ownership of the soil, while the state becomes the true owner in conformity with the apparent objective movement that attributes the surplus product to the state assigns the productive forces to it in the great projects undertaken and makes it appear as the cause of the collective conditions of appropriation. The full body, as socius, has ceased to be the earth. It has become the body of the despot, the despot himself or his god. The prescriptions and prohibitions that often render him almost incapable of acting make him a body without organs. He is the sole quasi-cause, the source, the fountainhead, the estuary of the apparent objective movement. In place of mobile detachments from the signifying chain, a detached object has jumped outside the chain. In place of flow selections, all the flows converge into a great river that constitutes the sovereign's 
consumption, a radical change of regimes in the fetish or a symbol. What counts is not the person of the sovereign, nor even his function, which can be limited. It is the social machine that is profoundly changed. In place of the territorial machine, there is the mega-machine of the state, a functional pyramid that has the despot at its apex, an immobile motor with a bureaucratic apparatus as its lateral surface and its transmission gear, and the villagers at its base, serving as its working parts. The stocks form the object of an accumulation. The blocks of debt become an infinite relation to the form of tribute. The entire surplus value of code is an object of appropriation. The conversion crosses through all syntheses, the synthesis of production with the hydraulic machine and the mining machine, the synthesis of inscription with an accounting machine and writing machine, and the monument machine, and finally, the synthesis of consumption with the upkeep of the despot, his court, and his bureaucratic caste. Far from seeing in the state the principle of a territorialization that would inscribe people according to their residence, we should see in the principle of residence the effect of a movement of deterritorialization that divides the earth as an object and subjects men to the new imperial inscription, to the new full body, to the new socius. They come like fate. They appear as lightning appears. Too terrible. Too sudden. 99% sure that last line is Nietzsche. Yep, Nietzsche, Genealogy of Morals, Essay 2, it looks like page 17. Yeah, there we go. Feels like a very clear, nice chapter and nice paragraph to me. It, the goal here is not to break down all the different types of barbarian formations or despotic formations or any of that, but instead to talk through how their production operates. Again, the thing they will keep going back to is how is the production of things organized? How is desire organized? How do these things get sort of placed in the places that they do production and anti-production? And here they introduce, they call it, they utilize Marx's Asiatic production, but it's, it, it doesn't have to be Asiatic. It's, there's a weird Orientalism with that whole section from Marx, but it's not far from the reality and a great deal of these despotic realities uh not just that but in, in european places as well um this this idea that the the king the czar the ruler the state uh ultimately tells everyone here's what you're working on they're not building chairs because they need to or because their neighbor's having a child or they're marrying someone so they make chairs to give or they have riches they're making chairs because they've been told this is what your village does now you make chairs <laughs> This is what you do now. You make bricks. This is what you do now. You make walls. You do these things. You set these up. Production is now completely uh, owned by this despot. And at the same time, as he says, as they say, he's the BWO here. He's the quasi-cause. If you go back and, God, if you talk about history books that we have fucking now. Oh, the, yes, no, the, the pyramids were made by the pharaohs. Like, that's a sentence that totally people say. I mean, I, I fucking have said it. Um, the quasi-cause, 100%, they were not made by the pharaohs. That's not how that works. Not, not at all. But the quasi-cause, the source, the fountainhead and estuary of the apparent objective movement, the, the way that it was set up, this is what he's, they're driving back to. And this is exactly what I'm getting at, too, though, is although you're 
there is absolutely this, um, he is the sole quasi-cause aspect, right? The fountain in that. It still takes the collective to make that possible, right? You still have the pyramid, as they say. So they go on to write, it is the, uh, what counts is not the person of the sovereign, not, nor even his function, which is weird to see Deleuze and Quadri like that, nor even his function, which can be limited. It is the social machine that is profoundly changed. In place of the territorial machine, there is the so-called mega-machine of the state, a functional pyramid that has the despot at its apex, an immobile motor with the bureaucratic apparatus as its lateral surface and its transmission gear, which I believe is a reference to affiliation, and the villagers at its base serving as its working parts. Well, I guess you have affiliation and alliance there all together, but that's kind of what I'm getting at is it's still with like this point about paranoia acknowledged and starting again from zero, I think that's really it, is it's this idea of like deterritorializing uh, the earth, affiliations and the alliances in a sense, and the way that that desert is created where um, you have that kind of counter counterproductive aspect that is itself productive, but you also have the sense of starting again from zero through the repulsion um, of that, uh, I want to say that system, but basically of that uh, that socius and what 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 is tied together in them. Well, hundred percent. And if we take it, one of the best lines in this paragraph, uh, maybe in this section at all, is uh, this last little bit right before the Nietzsche quote. Uh, far from seeing in the state the principle of a territorialization, it. I'll try to paraphrase. Uh, it's it's often that we will look at the any type of society and we will say, oh, the state lays out that these people are, are kings because they live in castles. These people are lords because they live in mansions. These people are paupers because they live. Here's that set up and we're inscribing people according to their residence. Like that's very common to to do such a thing. We should instead step back and go, wait, what what if the idea of residence itself this this concept of residence that people live inside of things or are part of that that itself is is the issue that is the thing that divides the earth as an object and subjects men to the imperial inscription to the new full body the new socius that again uh when we talked earlier it's one of the big giant themes of this but when we talked earlier about the unconscious their entire critique around everything inside of chapter two is that people commonly talk about the product, the, the top layer. Oh, you have the Oedipus complex. Let's work from there back the representation and let's then work back and find desire the small little bits. And their argument has been, Oh no, we need to actually get to desire. Where is desire? What is desire doing? Principally, we can apply that same thinking in every single way to society. The smallest bits are not desiring machines here. They're the subjects, people. And we talk about how people are organized and how people are laid out. Then we can see actually how this mass of people actually create the structure as the things move forward, that they're the things that divide the earth as an object, subjects them into new imperial scriptures, new full body, and new socialists. It's not top down. The representation, the Godhead, isn't the thing that actually lays it all out. We need to be flipping this. That's how I read that section. And I really adore that because it, again, gets back to the same concept of 
where are people at? Where is desire at? How does this flow from the person? And that's how I read that last bit. I, I just really like that. Also, he's um, talking about, they're, they're talking about the economic system set up as a, as a based on, um, you know, debt. And that uh, just, just like ours is, right? Or, or, or you know, most modern, modern societies are based on, on debt that you owe, you owe a tribute, right? It's um, the line at the bottom of 194 says that the, um, um, <clears throat> the functional pyramid that has a despot at the apex, an immobile motor with bureaucratic apparatus as its lateral service and its transmission gear and the villagers at the space and uh, the next line, the, the stocks form the object of an accumulation. The blocks of debt become an infinite relation in the form of the tribute. And the entire surplus value of code is an object of appropriation. That is, uh, you know, describes how, you know, people in that uh, socius is, is somehow, uh, you know, um, converted into, into a, uh, into um, you know entities that um, that owe something to the to the socius, you know, based on the idea of debt. That just like we have, we we use uh, credit cards and so forth, and we we get caught up in this uh, system of debts. Is that important? Uh, I mean, yes. I think I'll just say yes, and that's that's a it's a great note. Um, the the way way to think about debt in all of this it. Here, it's a little bit different. In general, we're talking about debt, for sure. Uh, here, they're being very specific. We're talking about the infinite relation in the form of tribute. For us, debt takes on a different setup, and they will be getting into that. It's a completely 100% accurate observation, though, that we're talking about the shift of how debt operates from being almost a gifting, potlatch, uh, back-and-forth economy-type system. Uh, in the, it's not really an economy, but that debt sort of governs people's behaviors and that it continues to. But with this, it's the form of tribute. It's no longer debts in back and forth with my neighbor or due to alliances or whatever. It's tribute to the Godhead, the, the, the man at the top, the, the dude in charge, because everything needs to be done for him. And it's all about the upkeep of his court, his caste, his despot, his body that this reality is now for everyone a debt to this person that is effectively infinite. And it's a 100% completely uh, spot on point to make sure everyone knows because it's going to come back up in like the next three chapters for sure. Next three sections. So yeah, absolutely. Or should I just No, I mean, I, you, you said yeah. most of it, but yeah, like it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to notice the, the importance of, and the way that it's relational and creates movement within a system is going to become like a huge focal point. Yeah, I mean, you're spot on because the, the because the socius is changing, the condition of debt is changing. So we go from a, a debt condition by the earth, the earth is quasi gods, right? That kind of, um, uh, logic of sense, right? That kind of effect hitting the stuff at the surface. You, you move from that condition to the condition of the despotic where now whatever we're, we're, we're going to be talking about debt, however debt produces us, is going to be through forms of tribute. And they lay this out really nicely because they're t they, they go on to say how the three syntheses are playing into this, right? So with like this kind of paranoiac condition, 
you have conversion crosses through all the syntheses, the synthesis of production with the hydraulic machine and the mining machine, the synthesis of inscription with the accounting machine, the writing machine, the monument machine, and finally the synthesis of consumption with the upkeep of the despot, the court, and the bureaucratic, bureaucratic caste. And I think that's really critical because you're seeing how production, right, when we're talking about the hydraulic and mining, we're talking about how this kind of, at one level, there's kind of elevation and uh, sort of digging into things, right? Which I think is kind of interesting that as production is changing, it, uh, the way the machines are playing into it is through this, uh, this aspect of basically extraction, or I guess with hydraulic, this kind of elevation of things. Whereas with inscription, as they go into the second synthesis, right, we're seeing how accounting, writing, and monuments are playing into uh, not only memory and the way that that's going to affect the line and affiliative, but also distribution, right, which is really critical when we're talking about counting and writing, because the, the primitive didn't have that kind of writing. And then with the, the third synthesis, right, where we're talking about our affects, our celibate machines, our intensities, as they're, they're relating to subjectivity, we're seeing how that actually plays into uh, not only the upkeep of the despot, but also the bureaucratic caste, which I thought was interesting, but it sounds like that actually kind of, um, it's kind of interesting that, that surfaces also into how the bureaucratic caste experiences uh, subjectivity, right? That, that this very production that also relies on them uh, reproduces or rather enables their subjectivity well and shapes it and shapes it and it's this really interesting thing that happens where my desire and subjectivity inside of this socius is manipulated eh, not manipulated um the representations and the way that alliances and affiliation play basically push my desire into these different places and push me into different places that ultimately encourage the same levels and same setup that it seems like is coming from top down. But again, uh, they're pretty explicit that it is not the case, uh, that it is, it starts within us uh, again, trying to answer Reich's uh, question of why men desire their own oppression. Uh, but I, I do want to get to the next paragraph as we sort of continue into this idea of the primitive system and the switch over. Uh, to continue, the death of the primitive system always comes from without. History is the history of contingencies and encounters. Like a cloud blown in from the desert, the conquerors are there. Quote, in some way that is incomprehensible to me, they have pushed right into the capital, although it is a long way from the frontier. At any rate, here they are. It seems that every morning there are more of them. Speech with the nomads is impossible. They do not know our own language. End quote. But this death that comes from without is also that which was rising from within. The general irreducibility of alliance to filiation, the independence of the alliance groups, the way in which they serve as a conducting element for the political and economic relations, the system of primitive rankings, the mechanism of surplus value, all this already prefigured despotic formations and caste hierarchies. And how does one distinguish the way in which the primitive community remains on its guard with respect to its own institutions of chieftainship, 
and exercises or straitjackets the image of the possible despot whom it threatens to secrete from within, from the weigh-in, which it binds up, the symbol, a symbol that has become derisory, of a former despot who thrust himself upon the community from the outside long ago. It is not always easy to know if one is considering a primitive community that is repressing an endogenous tendency or one that is regaining its cohesion as best it can after a terrible exogenous adventure. The game of alliances is ambiguous. Are we still on the side of the new alliance or already beyond it, having fallen back, as it were, into a this side of that is residual and transformed? Related question. What is the feudal system? We are only able to fix the precise moment of the imperial formation as that of the new exogenous alliance, not only in the place of former alliances, but in relation to them. Uh, so, so the idea is that we move on from one system to the other and that they don't tack on? It, not exactly. The, like that last sentence, I think, is really shows it well. We are only able to fix the precise moment of the imperial formation as that of the new exogenous alliance, not only in the place of former alliances, but in relation to them. So as the socii are changing, and this is what I mean, it's, it's a little rough, but saying like the earth is a kind of a schizophrenic socius versus the despoticus paranoiac socius. Those two still have a relationship even though the socius is taking over as quasi-cause, or excuse me, even though the despot is taking over as quasi-cause, what's been produced and what um, was made possible by those uh, memories is transforming into the despot, but also through the despot, right? So you still have this relationship um, with the, the earth as socius, but it's no longer going to be what conditions everything, right? Because that's going to take um, take cues from the despotic. But it's not like everything just gets like, it's not like we just start anew. Although the paranoia acknowledged the first principle makes it seem that way, right? It's the first principle of paranoia acknowledged starting from zero. This new alliance is something altogether different from a treaty or a contract. What is suppressed is not the former regime of lateral alliances and extended filiations, but merely their determining character. They subsist, more or less modified, more or less harnessed by the great paranoiac, since they furnish the material of surplus value. In point of fact, that is what forms the specific character of Asiatic production. The autochthonous rural communities subsist, and continue to produce, inscribe, and consume. In effect, they are the state's sole concern. The wheels of the territorial lineage machine subsist, but are no longer anything more than the working parts of the state machine. The objects, the organs, the persons, and the groups retain at least a part of their intrinsic coding, but these coded flows of the former regime find themselves overcoded by the transcendent unity that appropriates surplus value. The old inscription remains, but is bricked over by, and in the inscription of, the state. The blocks subsist, but have become encasted and embedded bricks, having only a controlled mobility. The territorial alliances are not replaced, but are merely allied with the new alliance. The territorial affiliations are not replaced, but are merely affiliated with the direct affiliation. 
It is like an immense right of the firstborn over all filiations, an immense right of the wedding night over all alliances. The filiative stock becomes the object of an accumulation in the other filiation, while the alliance debt becomes an infinite relation in the other alliance. It is the entire primitive system that finds itself mobilized, requisitioned by a superior power subjugated by new exterior forces, put in the service of other ends. So true is it, said Nietzsche, that what is called the evolution of a thing is, quote, a succession of more or less profound, more or less mutually independent processes of subduing, plus the resistances they encounter, the attempts at transformation for the purpose of defense and action, and the results of successful counteractions. The overcoding helps there, right? Because you can see how overcoding in this transcendental, transcendental, transcendent unity, right? Yeah, I get that term uh, precise. The transcendent unity is actually affecting the codes themselves, right? So overcoding still works with those codes as present, but it affects and um, kind of modifies them, right? And I don't think they go too much into it here, but they'll, the, the examples they give are, right? Like there's like a code, there, there's an instance that takes sort of a domain over all others, right? So the, the wedding night, I think of the godfather, right? Uh, you know, any favor on the night of my daughter's wedding, I have to grant. That alliance of that wedding um, starts to condition what's possible all these other alliances at a transcendent function. And it's that transcendence, the, uh, the way debt, for example, is governed and played with uh, prior to this uh, inside of the primitive is imminent. It's Debt is a thing that is incurred upon a moment and spent in another and kind of consistently moving, I suppose would be a way to put it. Whereas with the transcendental figure of the despot at the top, it is forever. And it's always going and it's always there. It's, it's, a, it's a completely different form of social organization. And that overcoding, I think, Jack, you're, you're spot on. It's the, the surplus value is a surplus value of code and it's consistently pulled out of every one of these smaller groups line uh, this they are the state's sole concern the rural communities that subsist and it's a not a thing that is unknown if you take a look through uh imperialism of hundreds of different nation states over time um that's basically how it works it has often been remarked that the state commences, or recommences, with two fundamental acts, one of which is said to be an act of territoriality through the fixing of residence, and the other an act of liberation through the abolition of small debts. But the state operates by means of euphemisms. The pseudo-territoriality is the product of an effective deterritorialization that substitutes abstract signs for the signs of the earth, and that makes the earth itself into an object of state ownership of property, or an ownership held by the state's richest servants and officials. There is no great change from this point of view when the state no longer does anything more than guarantee the private property of a ruling class that becomes distinct from the state. The abolition of debts, when it takes place, is a means of maintaining the distribution of lands, and a means of preventing the entry on stage of a new territorial machine, possibly revolutionary and capable of raising and dealing with an agrarian problem in a comprehensive way. In other cases, where a redistribution occurs, 
The cycle of credits is maintained in the new form established by the state, money. For without question, money does not begin by serving the needs of commerce, or at least it has no autonomous mercantile model. The despotic machine holds the following in common with the primitive machine. It confirms the latter in this respect, the dread of decoded flows, flows of production, but also mercantile flows of exchange and commerce that might escape when the state monopoly with its tight restrictions and its plugging of flows. When Etienne Ballas, Ballas asks why capitalism wasn't born in China in the 13th century, when all the necessary scientific and technical conditions nevertheless seem to be present, the answer lies in the state, which closed the mines as soon as the reserves of metal were judged sufficient and which retained a monopoly or a narrow control over commerce, merchant as functionary. Like the uh, analysis here, the pseudo-territoriality, the, the, the idea of euphemisms, that uh, territoriality is just moving and placing signs, making the earth itself into an object of state ownership. And the euphemisms around the abolition of debts, uh, which is very common in uh, the despotic especially, the debt needs to be basically migrated in very particular ways and hyper-regulated and controlled. Uh, that's why money was essentially invented, is the argument here. That it's uh, not so much about commerce or enabling people to make exchanges, but that debt itself needs to be controlled by the state and owned by the state. Uh, to your point earlier, JK, when you were asking, well, it's debt, is, is that a... It's like, yes, no, it's spot on. That's where they're going with this, 100%. It's uh, the play of how money works and what money does and trying to get away from the exchangist view of it. Uh, and it, I mean, it's just the next paragraph, essentially. So uh, about to dive in. Unless anyone has questions, please, now would be the time. Let's keep talking about cash. Who, who is Etienne Belaz? That's a great question. Let me find out real quick. So maybe someone I need to read. It's a Hungarian sinologist. Sinologist? The thing? Yeah, it is. Someone who studies China. All right. I, I was going to read the footnote while you're looking at it. Please, your, please. Your mission is quick at the mind. Um, so this is page 390, reference note 47. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend I understand French, uh, but something like Etienne Belaz, La Bureaucratic Celeste, 1968, see chapter 13, uh, La Niaissance de Capitalism in China. Uh, and then they write, Deleuze and Guadalupe write, especially the state and money and the merchants and possibility of gaining autonomy, pages 229 to 300. Regarding imperial formations founded on the control of commerce rather than control over public works. In Black Africa, for example, see the comments of Maurice Gollier and J. Surak Canal. In Maurice Godler, um, Sur les modes de production asiatique, 1969, pages 87 to 88, and 120 to 122. So I'll, I'll have a PDF for you, Ben, uh, by the end of this, I hope. Uh, Chinese civilization and bureaucracy is what they're discussing, and the, a lot of this is from that. Uh, I found a PDF. It's troublesome to get. Uh, Rocket Test asks, so money wasn't invented because trading goods wouldn't do in the long run? 
that is what we are taught. That is what I learned as well. Their argument is uh, distinctly different uh, because trading goods works just fine. As we moved from one socius to another and production needed to be organized, it was necessary for the state to maintain control over how debt get pa gets passed between people, how it gets passed, what is legally passed, how, how money and the circulation of money sort of works within this and to be controlled. Um, it's, it's necessary. Uh, it's, there's no autonomous mercantile model, I think is a great line, which is just true, absolutely. Um, but then the next paragraph's about uh, literally that. So I, I, I will answer with the next paragraph. Uh, I think that's fine. We'll jump forward. Uh, the role of money in commerce hinges less on commerce itself than on its control by the state. Commerce's relationship with money is synthetic, not analytical. And money is fundamentally inseparable, not from commerce, but from taxes as the maintenance of the apparatus of the state. Even where dominant classes set themselves apart from this apparatus and make use of it for the benefit of private property, the despotic tie between money and taxes remains visible. Basing himself on the research of Edward Mill, Michel Foucault shows how, in certain Greek tyrannies, the tax on aristocrats and the distribution of money to the poor are a means of bringing the money back to the rich, and a means of remarkably widening the regime of debts, making it even stronger by anticipating and repressing any re-territorialization that might be produced by the economic givens of the agrarian problem as if the Greeks had discovered in their own way what the Americans rediscovered after the New Deal, that heavy taxes are good for business. In a word, money, the circulation of money, is the means for rendering the debt infinite. And that is what is concealed in the two acts of the state. The residence or territoriality of the state inaugurates the great movement of deterritorialization that subordinates all the primitive filiations to the despotic machine. The abolition of debts or their accountable transformation initiates the duty of an interminable service to the state that subordinates all the primitive alliances to itself. These are the agrarian problems and the problem of debts. The infinite creditor and infinite credit have replaced the blocks of mobile and finite debts. There is always a monotheism on the horizon of despotism. The debt becomes a debt of existence a debt of the existence of the subjects themselves. A time will come when the creditor has not yet lent, while the debtor never quits repaying. For repaying is a duty, but lending is an option. As in Lewis Carroll's song, the long song about the infinite debt. A man, surely, a man may surely claim his dues, but when there's money to be lent, a man must be allowed to choose such times as are convenient. From Sylvian Bruno. I'm so glad we're doing logic of sense right now. Um, um, but to go back to uh, the, the question for rock test, it, it's, it, it, it plays a whole bunch of different roles, money as it works, but the two big parts of it uh, that it plays is it, it again, creates that, that ability for us to have this infinite debt, but also it sort of innately creates a, ongoing debt that can't be satisfied uh in uh and, and bataille goes in clasters goes into this the debt society potlatch how they operate there is a a general imminent reality to them but debts get solved and they move on 
No, there is more to it, and there is complexities between things, but these, these debts are mobile, they are finite, they are specific. We don't have that. We've lost that. The money itself is the means of rendering the debt infinite. Um, it's a really great line in here he has about the New Deal. Let's forget the New Deal. Let's make it really modern. How many times have you heard Libs arguing right now that we need to increase taxes because by paying people so much money, that money gets put back in the economy because, oh God, I even know the argument. I think I've made it in the past. Oh God. Poor people, if they get money, they go out and spend it. Rich people put it in the bank. If we give poor people money, then that money will get spent and go back into the economy. <laughs> that's, that's literally the argument he's making right here. Is like, hey, isn't that funny that that's, the, that's how it works? It's, uh, it's about making sure that the poor people and their, you know, excess capital, it's always going right back into the economy, back into the pockets of poor people. The more we tax, the more we give poor people money, the more we're able to get back. Hmm. It's funny that it circulates that way, isn't it? It is. Not great. Short version on my analysis. Everyone generally good. Get it. Any questions? Um, the, the last bit in here, I want to make sure we hit again because it's going to come back. Uh, it's going to come back big time for us is a, a, a time will come when the creditor has not yet lent while the debtor never quits repaying. Uh, we, we can find examples of that now. For repaying is a duty, but lending is an option. Fucking great lines. It's such a good line. Just to stress, though, because they do make this point, right, that like capitalism hasn't happened here. And just to, to guard against that, right, so capital hasn't taken over as the condition for commerce or, or more so as socius, right, where it becomes the social machine and that. We're still talking about like the uh, the despotic being what's um being the socius here, right? So even though we're talking about money and its relation to debt um, and the credit and debt system here, it's important to keep in mind that money is not what conditions that system. Money is here conditioned by it because that system itself, right, is conditioned by the socius. So the way money operates is ultimately here conditioned by the socius of the despotic as opposed to in capital yes we'll take over no it's really fair uh i should be very i should be careful how i start mixing these metaphors i just really like the line about the new deal which is more about capital but no it, jack's completely right this is uh we're still within the socius uh, prog uh all of things all production is being organized by the despot and money is the tool the means uh, that the despot is using for rendering debt infinite, for having these things happen. They're, it's a tool. It's not no longer the so, it's not the socius yet. Um, but yeah, Jack, you're completely right. Yeah, and if you look right, this is so. If we go back to the previous sections where we were talking about the kind of Leibnizian, um, I think it was the plus minus or the plus plus minus minus language they were talking about, which is effectively just the, them talking about how flows function and affiliated in the alliance, right? How they, they, how they break, how they uh, get redirected, how things get closed off and other things open up to the flows, yeah. That's what they're going into here, I think, when they say things like, um, see if I can find a direct example. Uh, the infinite creditor and infinite credit have replaced the blocks of mobile infinite debts. Still talking about flows in that, right? There's always a monotheism at the 
on the horizon for despotism. No, I don't need that right here. I swear there was a line where they actually say, like, um, you know, this conditions uh, flows or something like that. I'll see if I can find it. Uh, well, you do. I am going to head to the next uh, paragraph here, I think. If I can. Come on, PDF. Let me, let me rotate. For some reason, my PDF's not letting me do a damn thing. Excellence freezing. Oh, and it crashed. That's always good. It's my favorite thing to happen. All right, let's see if I can pull it back up and see what happens here. Fortunately, I think I can make the point real quick. Good, the do previous it. paragraph, actually. The despotic machine holds the following in common with the primitive machine. It confirms the latter in this respect. The dread of decoded flows, flows of production, but also mercantile flows of exchange and commerce that might escape the state monopoly with its tight restrictions and its plug-in flows. Which is then where they're going to go into uh, why wasn't why didn't capitalism happen in 13th century China, right? But that that's a great example of what I mean, where this point about infinite credit and, and how that's uh, how tribute is taking the form of debt here and conditioning how debt will function. It, you can walk this back to how the affiliative and the alliant function with that um, that sort of like Nietzschean language they were using earlier, unless it was Levi Strauss. And how that still carries into the affiliative and alliance as the tribute or the debt in the, the former sense plays out. The despotic state, such as it appears in the purest conditions of Asiatic production, has two correlative aspects. On the one hand, it replaces the territorial machine, it forms a new deterritorialized full body. On the other hand, it maintains the old territorialities, integrates them as parts or organs of production in this new machine. It is perfected all at once because it functions on the basis of dispersed rural communities, which are like pre-existing autonomous or semi-autonomous machines from the viewpoint of production. But from the same viewpoint, it reacts on them in producing the conditions for major work products that succeed the capacities of the separate communities. What is produced on the body of the despot is a connective synthesis of the old alliances with the new and a disjunctive synthesis that entails an overflowing of the old filiations into the direct filiation, gathering all the subjects into the new machine. The essential action of the state, therefore, is the creation of a second inscription by which the new full body, a mobile, monumental, immutable, appropriates all the forces and agents of production. But this inscription of the state allows the old territorial inscription to subsist as bricks on the new surface. And finally, from this appropriation, there results the way in which the conjunction of the two parts is implemented and the respective portions are distributed to the higher proprietary unity and to the pro pro property communities, to the overcoding process and to the intrinsic codes, to the appropriated surplus value and to the usufruct put into use, I don't even know, to the state machine and to the territorial machine. As in Kafka's The Great Wall of China, the state is the transcendent higher unity that integrates relatively isolated subaggregates, functioning separately to which it assigns a development in bricks and a labor of constructing by fragments, scattered partial objects hanging on the body without organs. No one has equaled Kafka in demonstrating that the law had nothing to do 
demonstrating law has nothing to do with a natural, harmonious, and imminent totality, but that it acted as an imminent formal unity and reigned accordingly over pieces and fragments, the wall and the tower. Hence, the state is not primeval. It is an origin or an abstraction. It is the original abstract essence that is not to be confused with the beginning. We think only about the emperor, but not about the present one, or rather, we would think about the present one if we knew who he was or knew anything definite about him. The people do not know what emperor is reigning, and there exist doubts regarding even the name of the dynasty. Long dead emperors are set on the throne in our village, and one that only lives in song recently had a proclamation of his read out by the priest before the altar. Uh, this last bit is a great little piece uh, discussing sort of the odd nature of how things were in another time before the speed of the internet or communication when a small village in a rural part of any country, doesn't matter, uh, might be actually reading out edicts from a king who's long dead, uh, having no idea who's currently ruling them, but still crediting them with everything and doing the edicts as required and requested. It's a great little piece to illustrate that. So we'll break it down. Uh, opening a couple sentences. The, the despotic state appears in the purest conditions of Asiatic production, as Marx uh, wrote about. Uh, on the one hand, it's the deterritorialized full body, a brand new one. And on the other hand, it brings the old territorialities, the, the way that things were, get integrated. They don't raise these towns to the ground and obliterate their social structures. They integrate them and they pull out their surplus code as they need. Uh, so it's this really fascinating setup where on the one side, it's eliminating territoriality, uh, but at the same time, it's actually re it's maintaining the old ones, integrating them as parts. Uh, so the larger territorial machine, and this is the part that I, I attach to, the idea of the territorial machine that's happening, the despotic machine, the socius and how it operates, the machine's dead. If we think about the machine at large, it's gone. It's been completely replaced in some way or another over time with this despotic machine. The old territorialities, the things that the machine sort of produced, if we just let it disintegrate, you still have the little town or the little village or the little, you know, chiefdom that has, you know, these alliances, these setups and these ways of working. The, the thing is still there. The machine's gone and it's been replaced. It's been replaced by this despotic machine, but the territorialities are now integrated and brought in. It's a really interesting genealogical way to sort of talk through how uh, these things get replaced and how these things move over time. No, no. Yeah, they become bricks on the new surface, right? Yes. So they're no longer... Um... Right, so it's not as the, though they're the direct part of the earth in that way, right? They're grits on the surface of the despotic. Because I especially like this point about um, what they're using with Kafka here, because the transcendent unity, right, it's still not exactly about the, the actual physical body of the despot, right? The way that the transcendent unity is able to function, it, it, you know, people don't even have to know who he is, right? Like, it's like that Monty Python bit, right? Uh, who's, well, I didn't vote for that king, you know. <laughs> that that does play out here in a sense um, rather nicely because you don't have to have that kind of um, 
you know, that kind of like uh, effective, efficient despotism for there to be this transcendent unity. Well, it, it's also a play here, and it's 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 important to talk through these things as though they're not things, but instead that they are an apparatus, a machine, uh, an assemblage, because that's I to me the big point they're making through this entire paragraph. If I try to synthesize it down, is that uh, we have a new territorial machine, and that is the new socius, that is the Asiatic production, that is the despot at the top, the machine. The way it is organizing production is outright replacing part by part the territorial machine. Uh, and if we think of the territorial machine as having existed for a time and it's kind of, you know, going along and it's producing little territorialities as it goes, it's doing its thing. The territorialities are still organized by that old machine. But as soon as that machine dies, the despotic machine comes and attaches to it. And like a, a beating heart, put into a machine suddenly it is draining it and utilizing its 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 productive powers but it doesn't mean and this is i think a, a big part of what they're getting at here this isn't saying that suddenly uh those guys are now living in a purely despotic totalitarian state it that's not how it works it's they're under the despotic machine this is a big deal because as we start moving from this to from the the primitive to the despotic we're going to have to make this move from the despotic to the capital. And we need to start, and like with Oedipus and with everything we're talking about, we need to not think of, oh, well, it's this thing and now it's this other. It's like, no, there's a setup here and a change. And the change is in the machine. The, the, the territorialities still exist. The territorialities are still there, produced originally by the old territorial machine of the full body of the earth. The new machine has come in, and piece by piece, it is replacing the old machine. Those territorialities don't like vaporize. They now get taken up by the new machine, and the new machine attaches to them and slowly just starts siphoning off some power, reorganizing them a little bit. This, this allegory that they're using as they're describing this is incredibly important to their version of universal history, in my understanding. Because it's the, the Oedipal machine, it's we have this idea that, oh, the the edible machine replaces a thing. And it's like, no, look, there's the way that representation is played and the way that these things have worked over time and the way that these have set up, they've been produced by various machines. Those representations are still there. Different machine comes in, different machine attaches, different machine reorganizes it. And over time, the actuality, the, the, the state of affairs, if you will say, uh, begins to seem to shift uh, as, as we sort of play through that. It's a, the line here that they move into, and it's a, an absolutely important element of the state as we talk through what the state is and this sort of, you know, uh, original uh, representation that the state is. What it does by coming in with the second inscription, it appropriates all the forces and agents of pr production, but this inscription of the state allows the old territorial inscriptions to subsist. It is how you have uh, it's how you have uh, countries in Africa uh, that are, you know, fairly tribal, but now they have their own forms of money and they're, they're trying to keep sort of that old trappings, but they're within the capital system. Or it's how you have all these tiny rural villages that once were under the, uh, uh, the primitive socius uh, being fully integrated into these despotic societies because the inscriptions allow these things to continue, they allow the trappings of such a thing to keep going. The, the, the 
to me, this is a is an important point, a, a deeply important point to this book. So I want to make sure I'm on the right track. Am I off? Um, it's a lot you're throwing at me. Um, I think the thing I would point out with your analysis, right? One of the reasons that we can talk about this kind of bricolor aspect, right? One of the things that makes it possible for the despotic to do this um, and its functionality with this, uh, the earth, right? Is, uh, and you saw this a few paragraphs, but uh, it's that it's still keeping out non-coded flows, right? So that same uh, concern, that same um, interest, if you like, that is still functions um, as part of the, uh, the socius in these two cases. The deterritorialization is interesting because we're seeing how, I mean, one way of saying is how we're going out of the, we're, this is kind of a Holland-esque view, but uh, they're, they're going out of the, the signifier into the signified, right? The transcendent unity, we're, you know, writing money, we're starting to move into sort of the more, uh, as they say, abstract. But that abstract is important, not because we're simply using the mental, but because of the way things like money start to sit atop um, what's previously, I don't want to say it's previously been there, but what has been there and is now being transformed, right? This is part of the overcoding process. And we, you know, I, I like their example of Jesus and, and then the Judaism and that, right? Or like Moses, right? Because the, the way despotisms function here in terms of the paranoiac, I mean, whether it's, you know, whether it's a function of, um, you know, Paul taking over um, Christianity as sort of like the, the what will become an orthodox interpretation, how the orthodox interpretation is even made possible, or something like Moses, where Moses can erect a new desert, in a manner of speaking, still through the, um, the, uh, the prevention of non-coded flows, right? Because even there, you've got somebody saying, um, you know, you've got kind of the speaker's benefit Foucault talks about, right? Uh, you've still got somebody using this stuff to say, um, hey, you know, forget this uh, forget this kingdom stuff, forget the pharaoh, right? Let's go do our own thing. But there's a way in which that itself plays into this transcendent unity, this despotic socius, right? And that I think does, um, in, in Bert's analysis, you can see that there's still this condition of, um, preventing non-coded flows that plays into how the deterritorialization is going to function, but also still allow for the um, the earth associates for all that to still be, as they say, right, overcoded and uh, deterritorialized in this way. I guess deterritorialized and integrated. Well, I, I yes, I I think for me. Um... It's yeah. I know I'm throwing a lot to me. Their their usage here and their way talking about the way that they talk about the organization of production uh, within a society through a socius through that BWO of the society. Um, they're very clear here in this paragraph as they then move into the body of the dis the despot with the connective, disjunctive, and conjunctive syntheses that utilize all of this. Uh, the same mechanisms that operate within our own psyche, within our own pre, our own unconscious, and the organization of our own desires, and 
the breakthrough that they're talking about here that I'm trying to sort of aim at early is they're aiming a lot of this at Oedipus uh, tangentially, essentially as allegory, but it's all its own thing. It's not like allegory as in it's bullshit. It's just pointing very hard at this idea that uh, the machine, the machine comes in and the parts underneath that have the resemblance of what the machine produced still get utilized. It doesn't mean that everything suddenly becomes despotic. They, they still operate and act and have the trappings on the money of, here is my, the, my people. This is proof in the money that, oh, we're still here. Yes, we're still a state. We're still a, a group. And we're able to maintain a great deal of that uh, through that sort of setup. It's uh, the way the line is. Uh, like pre-existing autonomous or semi-autonomous machines from the viewpoint of production, but from the same viewpoint, it reacts on them in producing the conditions for major work products that exceed the capacities of the separate communities. What is produced on the body of the despot is a connective synthesis of the old alliance with the new, a disjunctive synthesis that entails an overflowing of old filiations with the direct, uh, and gathering all the subjects into this new machine. The, the process of all of this, not being a step over, not being a jump, and not, again, confusing the process for the product, which is a big sort of thing that's consistent throughout their works. Because we're talking about the genealogy, the shift over time, how things shift, uh, and their usage here and describing all of this through their critique of money, their critique of uh, private property. Uh, and their critique of the despot and how this happened. I think the process of how it happened is as much their critique as the actual obvious criticism they're making of the elements. And that's the, the usage of bricks and brick lure. When it, Kafka's The Great Wall of China is, is about uh, this, you know, small, tiny group who have no idea what's happening and are continuing to do their thing uh, against this effectively alien unseen godlike force that they're producing for that they know that they're part of something greater than how they talk about it even it's it's a fantastic fantastic read for sure but it's it's that's the play here uh scattered partial objects hanging on the body without organs is what he refers to these people as and it's really a direct play towards his their theory of the unconscious and how it operates here as well I, I think that line from Kafka, especially as the transcendent unity, I mean, this really gets at it, right? Because it's not about, it, it's not simply about like even the family itself, right? Where Kafka writes, we think only about the emperor, but not about the present one, or rather we would think about the present one if we knew who he was or knew anything definite about him. The people do not know, that, uh, excuse me, the people do not know what emperor is reigning and there exist doubts regarding even the name of the dynasty. Long dead emperors are set on the throne in our villages, and one that only lives in song recently had a proclamation of his read out by the priest before the altar. Right, like, I even think of, I don't want to be mean to Sikhism here, but I even think about like the Tenth Guru there, one that only exists and in verse can, can proclaim things. Right. Uh, this transcendental unity, the way this kind of functions, I think is really um, on point here because uh, I think it shows you very nicely how the social machine functions in such a way that 
the way the intensities themselves are even um, uh, sort of uh, pinpointed in that or, or in their production, right? It doesn't have to be simply from like the, the physical bodies, the way that the writing and all that are functioning is through this, uh, this aspect of um, a unity which enables new capacities. And this is kind of the hard thing about this too, with criticizing. The, the despotic does open up new, all sorts of new things, right? It's, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of strange to talk about it that way, but they are kind of, I think, um, showing too that like with the despotic, you still do get a transcendent unity. It's just not this, this imminent. Hundred percent. Might have seen in the, the primitives. Hundred percent. And it's it's a it's a play and a push towards. Uh, I mean, there's a lot there, but it's it's a it's a play and a push towards. I would say, really, I I think my my thing I keep driving back when we talk about the two regimes, the molar and the molecular. Uh, a lot of people get confused that oh, we're talking about one thing over another or privileging this or that. No, we're talking about kind of the same stuff and just talking about it on sort of a, a matter of scale effectively or uh, the two sort of sides of that. It's very clear here how we talk about desire or production or um, how the despot uh, falls back on and owns all the production of the organs for them, just like you fucking do for all of your desires and the production within your unconscious. Like... This is the the despot inside, I guess, would be another way to sort of talk through that. I really love how tightly these things sort of come together for this book. All right, I'm going to continue the next paragraph, and we may... Uh, oh, that's it. Look at us. Look at us timing-wise. Two hours to this without even trying. Good, good on us. As for the uh, sub... Oh, go ahead, Jack. I wanted to say to your earlier joke about the Pope, right? I mean, that's kind of it, too, though, right? Like... It doesn't matter who the Pope is. It matters more so how the how that which is the papal can be evoked, right? Because it, it doesn't matter that the Pope is in Las Vegas, right? It matters that there is something... I mean, we have to kind of uh, squint here a little bit because we're kind of mincing uh, socii, but to make the point, right? It matters more so that there is this unity that involves the Pope, as we saw kind of in this uh, socius, right? that makes it possible for the Pope and your joke to even collect on that money. Yeah. Well, no, and it's, and it's, if you want to take it a step further, I would say it's very similar to how we like to pretend that we like food. Brooks likes this. Brooks built that. Brooks wrote this. And it's the same thing as a despot saying, yes, uh, I did this. The Pharaoh built the pyramids. That like, it's, like that's the same thing. It's the, these smaller elements, these, sub-aggregates that are having their production uh, fallen back on by this larger thing. Yeah, my ivory, Colonel Kurtz. It's Kurtz's. I need to fucking rewatch that movie now. As for the sub-aggregates themselves, the primitive territorial machines, they are the concrete itself, the concrete base and beginning, but their segments, pardon me, their segments here into, into relationships corresponding to the essence. They assume precisely this form of bricks that ensures their integration into the higher unity and their distributive operation, consonant with the great collective designs of the same unity, major work projects, extortion of surplus values, tributes, generalized servitude. Two inscriptions coexist in the imperial formation, and 
mutually adjust insofar as the one is imbricated into the other, but the new inscription cements the whole and brings producers and products into relations with itself. They do not need to speak the same language. The imperial inscription countersects all the alliances and filiations, prolongs them, makes them converge into the direct filiation of the despot with the deity and the new alliance of the despot with the people. All the coded flows of the primitive machine are now forced into a bottleneck where the despotic machine overcodes them. Overcoding is the operation that constitutes the essence of the state and that measures both its continuity and its break with the previous formations. The dread flows of desire that would resist coding, but also the establishment of a new inscription that overcodes and that makes desire into the property of the sovereign. Even though he be the death instinct itself, the castes are inseparable from this overcoding and imply the existence of dominant classes that do not yet manifest themselves as classes, but are merged with the state apparatus. Who is able to touch the full body of the sovereign? Here we have a problem of castes. It is overcoding that impoverishes the earth for the benefit of the deterritorialized full body, and that on this full body renders the movement of infinite debt. It is a measure of Nietzsche's force to have stressed the importance of such a movement that begins with the founders of states, these artists with a look of bronze, creating an oppressive and remorseless machine, erecting before any perspective of liberation an ironclad impossibility. This infinitivation cannot be understood exactly as Nietzsche would have it, that is, as a consequence of the interplay of ancestors, profound genealogies, and extended filiations. Rather, when these are short-circuited, abducted by the new alliance and direct filiation, then the ancestor, the master of the mobile and finite blocks, finds himself dismissed by the deity, the mobile organizer of the bricks and their infinite current. Let's have a question. How do you interpret um, that the, um, uh, the, um, the ancestor finds himself dismissed by the deity? That means that the, okay, that's that's because of the uh, of the new, uh, you know, despot comes on and takes over, right? And the uh, and uh, yeah, so um, I think specifically this is a response to uh, Nietzsche's uh, infinitivation, which is the idea that uh, the the nature of how we sort of play within societies or how these societies progress might be that we have this history, uh, as it says here, as a consequence of interplay of ancestors, profound genealogies, and extended filiations. And their critique here, I think, pushes us in another direction where we say, no, no, wait, it's when these elements are actually short-circuited, when they are abducted by the new alliance. Again, as I was talking about earlier, uh, we have to think about Essentially, we're moving between large-scale, massive social machines, massive social machines that are incredibly complicated and generating a whole bunch of different shit. Uh, inside of the primitive, we have our ancestors, we have our family, we have uh, genealogies, our extended filiations. As we move forward, in Nietzsche's view, we would almost keep these things or these elements. And it's like, no, no, wait, we actually have a new machine coming through here. And the machine is replacing the old bit by bit, and the new machine utilizes them, takes them, abducts them, 
and utilizes them. And at that point, this master, the, the, the ancestor, the one who had finite and mobile blocks, uh, is simply dismissed by the deity, is, is kicked aside. And that old organizer, that old machine, uh, is gone. It, it is gone. So now we have the organizer of bricks and their infinite current that has replaced it finally. It's like the last step. It's why they're, they're talking here. It's this overcoating takes place. And then in comes this guy who's like, I'm, I'm king. I'm everyone piece by piece by piece. And then, well, the, the towns keep all the trappings of who they are. These little villages, these rural communities, these primitive spaces, the machine is replaced. And the final bit, how I read this, the final bit of that sort of element is when the machine doesn't let them keep these, that, that complex interplay, which is a machine. We can't let the machine stand. Instead, we've got to kidnap the pieces and then kick out the old ancestor, keep all the trappings and allow them to continue to move on. I think that's how I, that's how I read it. Jack, Jack, Ken, Ben, anyone? Yeah. So these, uh, the feudalistic, feudalistic societies were, uh, you, you know, um, um, you know, um, with fertile ground for the despot, you know, uh, but it relied on some kind of uh, divinity, right? That they were, you know, uh, chosen by by the divine. And then, uh, but we're moving into the more modern age where that uh, those divinities, okay, um, are, you know, overthrown. And, right, so it's just a despot. And uh, so this could happen in a uh, in any society where there's capitalism or, or uh, you know, social socialist con communism. And specifically, it deals with um, uh, sort of that anarcho communist primitive because the the specific the specificities around the machine that organizes production within the society requires right. a lateral alliances and uh, uh, affiliations that are right. essentially imminent to each other and are essentially how desire is ultimately coded because there is no, uh, I'm going to go, I go with the Holland interpretation here. Anyone who wants to give a different one can jump in after me. Uh, the, the, the societies that came before that, the extended affiliation, thank you, Jack. Um, the, the nature of this is then that we have alliance wise, we, we don't really have um, an economy. It doesn't exist in an economic sort of strength thing. It's a potlatch society at best. Uh, we also don't really have affiliation in terms of power. Sure, there's a chief, but it's it's not the same thing as like full-on power that is hyper-organized into a single person. The chief is playing a role kind of alongside everyone else, and there's families and set up in here. The despot comes along and he sees this, where there is no large-scale power structure except this sort of fragile in and out, and that's they talk a little bit uh, a few paragraphs ago about that issue where they're trying to repair themselves and come back from it and they can't. Um, but uh, they see this sort of vacuum of power that doesn't bring economy yet. We're not there, but uh, sees this vacuum and goes, Oh, well actually, uh, Hey, you know, those affiliations you've got going back the extent, this massive network. Yeah. All of it comes back to me. Uh, hi, I'm Steve. I, I run all of this. That's great. Uh, or it's done through, as it says earlier, they're perverts, uh, the the bureaucrats, the priests, the 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 crusaders who go from town to town and do the conversions and let people know, oh, now you're doing these things, and it's 
it breaks into this total lack of power that is completely contingent on, you know, imminent specific things and instead increases their debt to this infinite level. And it's 100% why, yes, Jean-Claire, it's why despots try to eradicate institutional memory and they try to keep the trappings of all of these societies that they've taken on. They, the machine of these societies they need to dismantle and replace. Uh, so they slowly are going about doing that, but they allow them to keep the name of their town. Here's your little gods. Here's your stuff. You keep all of your cute stuff as long as it doesn't code shit. That's my job and that's money's job. And then we're going to overcode the fuck out of everything and you're going to be disconnected from all that you do. And that way I'm able to keep my power and the state apparatus can be kind of merged into it. That's my kind of long ramble answering. Jack or anyone else, jump in. You mentioned you had, uh, you, were, you were getting your, this from your Holland interpretation. Is that a uh, secondary uh, source? Yeah, so um, the guide I tend to read with a lot of this stuff is uh, going to be uh, Anti-Oedipus. Uh, I want to get the exact title right. Uh, it's explained by uh, Eugene Holland. Um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus Introduction to Schizoanalysis. It's, a, I think, my favorite sort of guide on it uh, until maybe we collectively write one as a group, which is a dream of mine, but it won't happen. Um, maybe someday. But I, I really like Holland's uh, reading of all of this. And it's a, it's a particular one as he's driving towards uh, what he sees as their larger scale project. And this is one step of the way towards that. We'll get there through the whole thing, but it's great. I just came across uh, the uh, Daniel Smith, uh, so one chapter in this book uh, on Deleuze. Uh, and that's, that, that kind of, uh, you know, encapsulates for me. A certain, uh, you know, perspective on on what uh, Ao is saying, but it's it's you know really talks about the uh, the economy of flows and coding and and also deterioration and uh, and the, uh, the the money economy. Sorry, was that was that directed at me? I don't have a response necessarily, JK. No, that's okay. I'm just uh, you know. Yeah, no, it was great. I didn't I didn't really have a response. Um. Any last comments, thoughts, anything to discuss? Uh, because I think I'm going to tap out and see if I can get myself some lunch. Uh, sounds good to me. Uh, if you made it through uh, all the way through here, please do follow us on Twitter, DNGQC. If you like what we're doing, you can also support us on Patreon, DGQC. Every dollar uh, goes to the server. No one makes money off this. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, we have a bunch of different random crap we want to do and we're trying to put together a conference. So please stay in touch and help us do that because we'd love to have that discussion overall. Uh, thank all of you so much. I'll talk to you soon. See you next week.